So last night, uh, Nisha Gill and I were talking about mindfulness. And I confessed to them that I just don't know how to define it. (laughs) And I know what, I know what mindfulness feels like when it's present like the impact that it has on my heart and my mind, can recognize when it's present. But um, finding the words in the imagery to convey what feels like the more I practice with it, the more and the more I directly experience it, it just feels really mysterious. the words and the imagery that I'll share with you um, don't quite get to and convey the the totality, the simplicity, the profundity of mindfulness, sati, awareness. I'll share some reflections. Around sati, the Pali word that's translated as mindfulness sometimes or awareness. And I'll use all three interchangeably. So there's a, um, a monastic by the name of Venerable Inalio. He's, a, like I said, a monastic and a scholar. And if, you've ever, if you ever get the chance to sit with him or listen to some of his guided meditations, uh, you'll notice that he says the word sati in a very particular way. I love the way he says it. Sati. Sati. The way he says it, there's so much um, vigor and delight as if he's greeting a friend. And he often talks about Sati as a friend. And he um, even talks about Sati as she, which I found really interesting. I was sitting with him some time ago, sitting in the hall, similar to this. And he's talking about Sati and he refers to Sati as she. This kind of was odd. <laughs> Go on practicing. The next day, same thing, refers to Sati as she. Again, refers to her as she the next day. So you get a chance to have practice meetings with him. So we went for our practice meeting walk and I asked him, what do you mean by uh, calling Sati Shi? What's, what's that play there? What's going on? I'm going to paraphrase what he said. He said, 
that he wasn't assigning a gender to sati. He wasn't saying that it was male or female. He said that uh, to him, all human beings have these archetypal energies. And some of these archetypal energies are masculine and feminine. And that to him, sati has the archetypal energy of femininity, that it's soft and receptive, open, and that when we attend to experience with the soft, open, receptive awareness, that it can give birth to a new perspective, a new way of relating to our experience, perhaps even one that's liberative and free. So this is a person, this is a human being with a really rich, um, a very rich individual specific experience to sati, sati. <laughs> and when we practice and develop a relationship with sati, um, it becomes really important to recognize what that relationship is. Is it a relationship that's one of contention? Is it one of struggle? Is it one of trying to um, create mindfulness, to become more mindful? Is it one that's of a relationship of like neutrality or laxness? Like we're aware that it's there, but we don't really mind if it comes and goes because perhaps we don't even recognize when it arises or what the heart and mind actually feels like when sati, when mindfulness, when awareness is present. So a couple of years ago, I started, um, just started thanking sati, saying thank you when it's present, just thank you for being here. When I noticed that my mind had wandered and the um, awareness or mindfulness came back, I would just smile. I learned this from Venerable. And it may sound silly to do, because I think our culture has a really odd relationship with kindness, it, and it thinks of kindness as weak. It's not. It's a real wholesome way to like bring kindness and warmth and patience to when the mind wanders. To actually smile when um, the mindfulness returns, or to cultivate an attitude of gratitude with sati, because it's a wholesome way of countering the 
ways that we berate ourselves for not living up to some idea that we have around practice, that we have around um, this faculty of mindfulness and wanting to be present. So when we meet the recognition of the disappearance and the returning of sati with frustration, with contraction, with upset, it creates, for me at least, it creates a real untenable atmosphere in my heart and mind. And then I don't want to practice. Like who actually wants to practice with an inner world that's inflamed or agitated? are caught up with the different ways that we berate ourselves or we can berate ourselves when mindfulness disappears and then it comes back. This is from a, a, a really thin book called um, Unseating the Inner Tyrant. It was written by Ajahn Suchito. He says, handling the human heart is quite a job, so we need all the encouragement we can get. We all have energies and attitudes that need to mature into wisdom, but maybe there's a way of helping the heart to grow up by encouragement rather than through blaming. So rather than like wincing when we notice that the mind has wandered or berating ourselves, can we actually meet that with kindness? Can we meet that with some understanding? So we're really honest about what's happening. We see it clearly. We see that the attention has landed on some other aspect of our experience other than the primary meditation object that we're working with, that our thoughts have landed on, or that our attention has landed on, say, thoughts of the past, the future, or the present moment. And we also come to understand that how we've used our attention in the past shapes and influences how we use our attention in the present moment. So I'm about to head into a period of practice. And I've noticed that when I'm on retreat or a long retreat, that I, um, sometimes the mind will start to entertain itself and will actually start to fall into these like song worm loops, kind of universes that it gets looped into. So I just wanted to experiment and play with what it would be like if I just let go of listening to music in the weeks prior to the retreat. So I almost made it. <laughs> I almost made it. Um, last week I was with a friend of mine and her whole family, except her husband, has fallen in love with the musical Hamilton. And I haven't seen it, so she's just telling me about how beautiful it is, and um, I think as a way to convince me to go. And as she was talking about it, it reminded me of a, a composer for the musical theater that I really, really love and adore. So I sent her a song 
but before I sent it to her, I listened to it. And what happened when I arrived here at IRC and sat down? Loop the loop loop. <laughs> loop the loop loop. And then it was, there was a little like, oh no. <laughs> Here is the loop. And is this going to move into the uh, month of practice? And then it was just, it just remembered. Uh, Suchito's words. Could I encourage myself? Could I actually bring some understanding to this situation? Handling the human heart is quite a job. So we need all the encouragement we can get. We all have energies and attitudes that need <coughs> to mature into wisdom. But maybe there's a way of helping the heart to grow up by encouragement rather than through blaming. So we gently remind ourselves that I've been using my attention and it's been landing on X in the past. In my case, it was landing on this song and it was preoccupied with it, right? So I used it that way in the past. That's going to show up. It's going to land, that that's going to shape how, I, how my attention shows up in the present moment. And that that's actually okay, I don't need to berate myself around that. That it's natural, how could it be any other way? Right? However, if how we use our attention in the past shapes how we use our attention in the present moment, how we use our attention in the present moment shapes how we'll use our attention in the future. And this is one of the gifts and one of the beautiful things about being on retreat and having the space to actually cultivate mindfulness is that every time we see that the mind has wandered and we return to the present moment, we're setting the conditions for mindfulness to arise more frequently in the future. So the five faculties, these divine influences in the mind were named after the Hindu god Indra, as Gil reminded us earlier on in the retreat. And some of the qualities that are associated with Indra are guardianship, uh, a bringer of sunshine and rain. So you can think of that as a uh, the bringer of things that are nourishing and life-sustaining. He was associated with being a friend to humankind. So we can think of these five faculties. The faculty of faith and energy and mindfulness and concentration and wisdom as guardians as uh, bringers of benevolence and uh, bringers of things that are nourishing and life-sustaining. 
as a friends, benevolent forces that help our heart to mature into wisdom, into freedom. Because these divine influences, when they're developed, they can and do lead to peace, to liberation, to enlightenment. Well, this is from the Samyutta Nikaya, venerable. It is said, one equipped with faculties, one equipped with faculties. In what way, venerable sir, is one equipped with faculties? All right, so there was a time when I would read these suttas and I'd feel like the Buddha was talking to someone over my shoulder 2,600 years ago. And yet I would have experiences and still do have experiences where I feel like I'm just so moved by the suttas and what I read. And in those moments, I remember that the Buddha is talking to this heart, that my heart, that all the hearts here in this room, our hearts and minds in this room aren't all that different than the hearts and minds that existed 2,600 years ago that received these teachings. So when you hear the word bhikkhu, just know that the Buddha is talking to you. He's talking to us. So these five divine faculties, when developed, lead to peace and liberation. It says here, bhikkhu, a practitioner develops the faculty of faith, which leads to peace, leads to enlightenment. And there will be repetitive elements in this passage. And when we hear repetition, we can think, oh yeah, I kind of got that, and stop attending to, stop listening. See if you can stay present to the repetitions and just allow yourself to rest and receive them. Perhaps allow the meaning to drop a little deeper. Here, a practitioner develops the faculty of faith, which leads to peace, leads to enlightenment, he develops the faculty of energy, which leads to peace, leads to enlightenment. She develops the faculty of mindfulness, which leads to peace, leads to enlightenment. They develop the faculty of concentration, which leads to peace, leads to enlightenment. She develops the faculty of concentration, which leads to peace, which leads to enlightenment. So sati, mindfulness, awareness. Sometimes it's talked about as a illuminating experience. For me, uh, a metaphor for sati is one of water. It's like water, sati is transparent. It can take the shape of whatever it's aware of and allow an intimacy, a sense of knowing, like a, a deep knowing of whatever is the object 
whatever um, sati is shining its light on. Sometimes in the suttas, um, sati is described as limpid. It's not an everyday word that we hear, limpid. It means um, undarkened. There's this metaphor of seeing clearly that is runs through this practice. And limpid is used to describe eyes, eyes that are unclouded, eyes that are clear. So for me, when sati grows in strength, sometimes it's described as establishing mindfulness, establishing awareness. It doesn't actually feel like it's being established. (laughs) Sounds like you're building something that's really concrete. That's not my experience with sati feels like it grows in strength and it feels like a very just a soft home that I can just rest in and it's effortless it just effortlessly knows experience You could call this the state of sati. Just grows and you rest and relax, just knowing experience, just aware of experience. So you can Play with this for yourself and see if sati feels like a state, something that grows in strength and power that you can just rest and relax in as it's effortlessly knowing experience. And as these five indriyas point to, like sati is an innate capacity. That's what I love about the Buddha and I love about these five indriyas. The Buddha, like, he doesn't have a start from scratch. He's not like, oh, freedom's over there. You got a map? You got a compass? Oh, you kind of out of luck. Sorry. <laughs> He's, um, he doesn't have a start from scratch. He's aware of like the innate raw capacities of our human hearts. And he gives us practices that help to strengthen those capacities. And that we then harness those capacities for freedom, for liberation, for the development of wisdom and compassion.
So Bhikkhu Bodhi talks about, he's another monastic and scholar, and this is how he talks about sati. Sati, if you want to hear him talk about this when you go home, you can just look up sati, Bhikkhu Bodhi, and there's this three-minute clip of him. Um, There's a real sincerity and a humility about him that's kind of beautiful to behold. So this is how he talks about sati. Sati, I call it a bending back of the stream of awareness upon oneself, upon one's own concrete immediate experience in order to bring clarity to that experience. And so I would say that sati is what keeps the object present before one's attention. Or we could even render, render sati as attentiveness, not attention. This is fascinating. Check this out. Attention is turning the mind to the object. We could render sati as attentiveness, not as attention. Attention is turning the mind to the object. In fact, the Pali uses the word dharana sometimes to mean sati. Dharana means retaining or preserving, keeping the object in mind. So that is the function of sati. So I love what he's saying here, that sati isn't uh, a doing, it's not turning the attention towards our meditative object. We're exploring together in these days of practicing here in a capacity, a state. He used Bhikkhu Bodhi's words, a stream of awareness and attentiveness. And it's easy to conflate the doing aspects of practice say, the activity of attention and perception with sati, with awareness, with mindfulness. So attention is a function of mind. Uh, out of all the myriad things that are happening in a moment, all the sounds and sensations of the body and the sights, smells, tastes, all the thoughts and emotions, out of that myriad of experiences that are flooding into our six sense doors. Attention selects one of those things to be aware of. That's the function of attention. Perception is also a function of mind that recognizes experience, that recognizes an object. Ceiling, floor, Buddha statue, clock, Lights. So it's the recognizing and naming of experience of objects. And sometimes this is verbal. Most of the time it's nonverbal. And it's easy to conflate the doing activity of attention and perception with mindfulness and with sati because what helps sati to grow in strength 
is this, uh, are the functions of mind of attention and perception. So with attention, we're intentionally turning the attention to a meditation object. And then we're sustaining the attention on the object. And very gently, repeatedly, recognizing the meditation object. Perception, right? So those three things can help sati to grow in strength. But it's not actually the experience of sati. It's not the arising of mindfulness. It's not the arising of awareness. So this relationship between attention and perception and how they support the growth of sati and awareness feels really similar to the relationship between all the conditions that come together to uh, create a rainbow and the rainbow itself. So with a rainbow, or the conditions that result in the arising of a rainbow, you have um, water droplets in the air. Behind you is the sun. And all the rays of the sun are traveling through space. They move through those water droplets. The light ref- refracts and uh, it spreads into those seven different colors, seven beautiful colors of the rainbow. So those water droplets, your position, the sun, motion, refraction, those are all the conditions that result in the arising of the rainbow, but it's, they're not the rainbow itself, right? And similarly, the way that we use attention and perception to support the arising of sati is not sati itself. Does that make sense? So there's a volitional aspect to um, helping sati to grow through attention and perception. By volition, we're talking about intention. And there's a truth about intention that this practice and one of my teachers made really clear to me. And this is the way one of my teachers kind of explained it. He says, our intention operates within a wider network of causes and conditions. It can influence things. So our intention influences things, but it can't completely control things. So in growing sati, our intention is one of the many conditions that influence how we use attention and perception to strengthen sati, but it doesn't completely control the process. So again, this is just an invitation to relax 
the doing around the cultivation of sati, of mindfulness, of awareness. We're not in control of this process of cultivating sati. Sati will arise in its own time as conditions will allow. And we just loyally tend and do the very simple, humble work of cultivating sati with attention and perception through intention. It took me some time to recognize this. There was a time when I was really confusing the experience of mindfulness with the activity of uh, cultivating mindfulness, cultivating sati. And this confusion would manifest itself as an imbalance of energy in long retreat. I'd be working with the breath and I'd overdo the turning of the attention to the breath and trying to sustain the attention on the breath and then aggressively noting the breath. <laughs> and I'd experience a little stability around this, but it just got so tiring and then once I let go of the striving, all of that stability would just collapse. It's as if the striving um, made the stability fragile. It was too mechanical. There wasn't any heart in it. So it just fell apart. So I'd work really hard in the morning, midday would come and I'd fall asleep. <laughs> and then in going to sleep, the energy would rebalance. And I'd wake up and I'd practice. And I did the cycle over and over and over again. Don't do this. <laughs> You are looking at someone who strived. It does not work. Just take my advice. What helped and continues to help me relax any um, straining in this process of cultivating sati, just being loyal to the breath or whatever meditation object we're working with. Five things that really supported this. One was just continuing to practice. Two was an experience that I had in long retreat. It was over striving or, or just striving. And I walked into the practice meeting with my teacher who at that point I had sat like four long retreats with him. So he was familiar with my practice, familiar with me. We'd go for walks and just talk about Dharma. So he knew me well. So as soon as I hit the door, he knew that something was off, that something was wrong. And because I was striving and I wasn't getting the results that I wanted, I did what all minds do when they get in that state. I um, started to doubt myself. I started to doubt the practice. I was like, if I was just more X, Y, and Z, then I could do this practice. So I walk in, hit the door. He sees immediately that something's wrong. 
and I'm totally out of sorts. The story comes tumbling out of me. He says, I'm going to take you off the cushion. You're totally out of balance. I want you to go for a hike and get some tea. And at this point, I'm feeling like a, a complete failure because there's like 90 other people in the meditation hall who are doing the practice and he's taking me off the cushion. So as I'm about to leave, he says, do you want to read a book? And they tell us not to read on retreat and he's giving me a book. So I just, again, it's a testament to the fact that I'm failing at this practice, but secretly I want to read the book because I don't want to practice because my inner world is so like I said, untenable. So I take the book. I don't go for the hike. I don't get tea. I go to my room. I don't even sit on the chair or the bed. I just deflate it on the floor. And the inner critic is just pummeling. And by some, some grace, there was this voice. It was so distant, it was so tiny. And it said something really simple. It said, kindness is the best way to do it. It had probably been saying that all along, but I couldn't hear it through the striving. I couldn't hear it through the self-recriminations. So this was um, when the heart started to come back into the practice for me. Some patience, some warmth. Like This was food for the heart. Kindness is the best way to do this. You don't have to strive. Okay, so third thing that has really helped in relaxing this driving was a poem that Andrea Feller read in a long retreat. And I asked her for it. And I didn't work with the whole poem. I just worked with the first few lines of it. And it's, um, happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present, like happiness is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do or undo. And I would just use this as um, an instruction, especially when I saw like starting to like strive, starting to like crave and cling and have expectations. There's nothing to do. Don't strain yourself. Open relaxation, letting go, just resting back and down, resting and receiving experience while also engaged in the effort of turning the attention towards the meditation object, sustaining attention on perceiving that meditation object, doing it with this open relaxation, this letting go, 
down and back. Fourth thing that has helped. Uh, one of my teachers gave me a, a gesture for this um, working with attention, turning towards the meditation object, sustaining the attention on the meditation object. Gonna have to stand up. Again, this was Venerable Analio. So imagine him in his robes going like this. So here's the meditation object. And this was um, the gesture that he used for turning towards the meditation object. for sustaining the attention. Here's the meditation object. Slightly tapping. Slightly. I love the taste of the body. Really relaxed. Slightly tapping. And then a friend of mine gave me a really beautiful word for this sustaining the attention on the meditation object. She said, oh, one of the Chinese characters used to describe this act of sustaining attention is accompanying. Isn't that beautiful? Accompanying the meditation object being a companion to the meditation object. And you're a companion to the breath, you're getting to know it. It's like a friend, you get really interested, it becomes quite familiar and comfortable. The awareness starts to build and strengthen. Remember being in a long retreat? Being with the breath. And there was some um, fear that moved through and it passed. And when the fear broke, uh, 
the breath felt really It's like Mama's home. <laughs> it was um, trustworthy, like the awareness and being with the breath. Like the question arose, like, why were you so afraid of this? Why, like, why not trust this? This is trustworthy. This being aware of the breath. It was just trustworthy. So when the Buddha is describing the faculty of sati, or when he's describing a practitioner who is mindful, this is what he says. There's the case where a practitioner is mindful, highly meticulous, remembering and able to call to mind even things that were done and said long ago. So sati is associated with memory and remembering. And it's not cognitive. It's um, what sati is pointing to in this context is being so radically present to what was happening that you're actually able to remember and recall what happened because you were fully there to receive the experience. So he goes on to say that the mindful practitioner, they remain focused on the body in and of itself, ardent, alert, and mindful. Again, the repetitions just allow them to wash over you. She remains focused on feelings in and of themselves, ardent, alert, and mindful. He remains focused on the mind in and of itself, ardent, alert, and mindful. They remain focused on mental qualities in and of themselves, ardent, alert, and mindful. This is called the faculty of mindfulness. So this is the standard description of the four satipatthanas, or the four establishments of mindfulness. And these four areas that help us in establishing sati, the body, or feeling, and feeling in this case is um, not our emotions, but three basic uh, three basic tones that uh, accompany our experience. It's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Neither pleasant or unpleasant. The mind, thoughts, and emotions, and functions of mind. And then we have uh, that fourth area, uh, mental qualities, dharmas. Mental qualities feels, um, feels like it covers some of the things that are in this fourth area, 
but it's also um, ways of looking at our experience, ways of categorizing our experience that help us to relate to it in a different way, in a way that's more um, fluid and not so habitually wrapped up in systems of craving and clinging. So as Gil mentioned on the first night at the retreat, these four areas are our native lands, are our ancestral home. So again, the Buddha, move in your own resort, in your own ancestral domain. And what is your own resort? What is your own ancestral domain? It is this four... It is this four establishments of mindfulness. So I've just been thinking about this, like what is it about these four areas that when we turn our attention to them, we recognize that these four areas are our native lands, are our ancestral home. that the four establishments of mindfulness are the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of dukkha and discontent, for nibbana, freedom, liberation. He's saying that my interpretation. He's saying that our ancestral home is freedom, that liberation is our birthright. And having an honest encounter, encounter with the body, feelings, the mind, and uh, mental qualities are these... Um, categories of experience helps us to let go, gradually let go of the ways that we create pain and undo suffering for ourselves and the people that we love. Remember sitting um, retreat where we were working with the four Satipatthanas, these four areas, ancestral homes. I was working with the um, elements, or excuse me, the anatomical parts. It's one exercise within that first foundation body. It's a way of helping us to get a more broad perspective on the body, that we have a more balanced attitude towards our own bodies, towards our own body and the bodies of others. So in this particular um, practice with the anatomical parts, we're just sweeping the attention through the body, connecting with skin and flesh and bones, and then sweeping through and just recognizing skin And then it occurs to me, it's just skin. 
There are so many ways that we relate to the body through our ideas, through the ways that we've been acculturated, our cultural conditioning, through our wishes for the body. So just closely observing the body in this way, just being with skin, like, oh, this is just skin. This like regulates my temperature and keeps pathogens out. But it's just skin. And then the thought arose, like, all the things that are assigned to what this skin means, what it's indicative of in terms of what I can and cannot do, that's a perception that's projected onto the skin. But that's not skin. And I knew that up here, but to feel it here, like, I just wanted to shout it from the rooftops. <laughs> it was so, it was such a thrilling experience to be freed of the cultural conditioning around the significance of this skin and to just have an experience, a direct, honest encounter with skin as skin, body as body. So working with these, closely observing, repeatedly looking at these four areas, these native lands, our ancestral home, can gradually help us to release some of the attitudes and ideas that we have that keep us bound in, like I said, systems of craving and clinging. helps in the establishment. Again, it doesn't feel like establishment to me. It supports the growth and the um, strengthening of mindfulness that you can enter into when it's present and just rest and relax and trust as it knows experience directly. Well, this is from Toni Morrison's Beloved. And when you hear the word she, just put in the word awareness, mindfulness, sati. She is a friend of my mind. She gather me up, man. The pieces that I am, awareness, gathers them and gives them back to me all in the right order. It's good, you know, when you got a friend of your mind. Let's just sit for a moment. 